ladies and gentlemen, you're very welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. My name is Scott Morris and I'm joined today by Drew Tamandale. Hello. And Craig Eastman. My God, Smegalodon. <laughs> Did you just catch up with the Meg or something? <laughs> you guessed. Yeah. <laughs> right, well, that's one of the few you've actually managed to get. Yes. That was a uh, Frederick Forsyth joint, right? <laughs> might have been. Yeah. So in podcasts passing, we've discussed the regard for the more grounded, at least somewhat realistic espionage dramas from the likes of Jean Le Carre as opposed to your James Bond. Uh, but despite Frederick Forsyth ploughing a very similar furrow, I must admit I'm not actually all that familiar with his works. So we're aiming to rectify that today as we discuss the four major adaptations of his work, leaving to one side a slew of TV movies with poor reputations. So join us as we place The Day of the Jackal, The Odessa File, The Dogs of War and The Fourth Protocol under surveillance. And to lay any of your cynical assumptions, we didn't pick this topic purely to give our awful Christopher Walken and Michael Caine impersonations another outing. That was only 86% of the rationale. So, yeah, Frederick Forsyth, let's say, not hugely familiar with his work. I mean, I've, I've done a bit of reading up, so I know he was a journalist by background who spent a lot of time in, uh, covering the Biafra War and wrote a factual book about that, which didn't do great guns, and so he turned his uh, sights on doing some more fictional work, uh, which has earned him great acclaim, great success, but uh, I've not, to my knowledge, actually read anything he's done. So, are you, any of you guys uh, any more familiar with him than I am? Mm. I, I have read The Odessa File, and I have read The Day of the Jackal, I did that last week, so... Right. <laughs> no, I, I was always aware of his existence. My dad used to read Frederick Forsyth when I was wee. I remember that, and mm. I must have watched The Day of the Jackal the first time 30 years ago. Uh, but that was the only Frederick Forsyth film I'd watched for a long time, up until 1997. And mm. that kind of puts me off watching any other films yes. at all after that <laughs> point. But no, uh, beyond that, I wasn't any more familiar with them. Mm. Uh, filmically, yeah, I saw Day of the Jackal at a very young age, and I've had a great fondness for it since, um, that, which prompted me on a school trip to Germany, I believe it was, to pack in my backpack one of those sort of two books in one volume hardback efforts, which mm. was uh, The Day of the Jackal um, oh, and The Dogs of War. A um, uh, uh, French veteran's card and uh, aluminium <laughs> crutch. I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> um, and, uh, the, I mean, they're fairly weighty tomes, and I, I worked my way through The Day of the Jackal eventually after a couple of restarts. Uh, I never did get round to reading uh, The Dogs of War. It's um, like you probably, Scott, there's a bit of a, a, a gap, a bit of a blind spot in my uh, love for spycraft and all things related, bizarrely. Um, from Frederick Forsyth's direction. In terms of literature, I'm much more familiar with uh, John le Carre, mm. and in uh, terms of film adaptations, I'm, I'm more fluent in le Carre and uh, Len Dayton stuff. Yeah. Um, I've, mm. not, I've not really, um, I realised, despite having seen most of the fourth protocol on and off on a couple of occasions over the years, um, apart from that, Dave the Jackal, um, is the only um, Frederick Forsyth adaptation um, and novel, for that matter of fact, that I've had any investment in. So uh, when we came to do this, I kind of surprised myself with how little I actually know about Frederick Forsyth. Yeah, I'm exactly the same, Craig. I've, uh, I like John Le Carre's work a lot, seen a lot of his adaptations, read his mm. books, seen a lot of Len Dayton films, well, a few Len Dayton films anyway, and somehow Frederick Forsyth, I had seen The Day of the Jackal up until last week and that was it. Mm. Strange. It's strange because yeah. I, I don't think he punches at the same weight as John Le Carre um, and in literary terms, but it's still a genre where he is a, a big name. He's one of he's yeah. one of the big players, and it, yes, I kind of surprised myself. It sounds like you gents are the same. Yes, exactly. So I suppose we may as well just dive in straight to what is his probably his most famous and well regarded book, and probably the best of the adaptations we'll speak of today as well with the Day of the Jackal. And uh, Drew, could you give us a bit of a rundown on that one? I will do. After France withdrew from Algeria and granted the country independence in the early 1960s, several attempts were made to assassinate the French president Charles de Gaulle, mostly by the right-wing paramilitary OSA, Organisation Armée Secrète, or Secret Armed Organisation, it's not much of a name, really, is it? <laughs> they do what they say on the tin. <laughs> a French patriot group who accused de Gaulle of disloyalty and treason to the French Republic. 
After another failed attempt, the film recreates this real attempt at the beginning in 1962, the OAS look to an outsider whose existence will be known to only a select few and who therefore cannot be betrayed by French police infiltrators or by torturing OAS members. The assassin that they hire is Edward Fox's Chacal, the Jackal, presumably British but whose identity is entirely unknown beyond a reputation for efficiency. He gets to work meticulously planning the assassination and making all the necessary preparations. The French authorities, due to this plan by the OSA, are oblivious, but they begin to get the idea that the OAS is planning something, and, since they've tried numerous times already, it's a fairly good bet that what they're planning is the assassination of the president. (laughs) (laughs) What follows is a race against time for the police and a match between the implacable, methodical, capable and highly intelligent Deputy Commissioner Claude Lebel, Michael Lonsdale, and the implacable, methodical, capable and highly intelligent Jackal. And it's fascinating. The Day of the Jackal cleaves very close to Forsyth's novel, but is, to my mind, one of the very few literary adaptations that are actually better than the source, as a little of the unnecessary fat is trimmed off, leaving a relatively sedately paced but taut and lean thriller behind. The two leads are simply tremendous. Foxy's killer is so clinical, free largely from emotion, yet not somehow free from charisma, and he's captivating to watch. And so satisfying is his preparation to watch, so expertly paced here by director Fred Zinnemann and editor Ralph Kemplin, that it's quite easy to fall into the trap of wanting him to succeed. (laughs) You know, up until you remember the whole cold-blooded murderer thing, (laughs) even if de Gaulle was an asshat. (laughs) Michael Lonsdale's stoic label is perhaps my favourite screen detective ever. His unassuming yet assured manner, though unlike the jackal, he does seem to be affected by stress and emotion at times, his quiet tolerance of the doubts and insults of his oafish and supercilious superiors, and, above all, his methodical investigation. I have referenced this many times before in the podcast, and likely will do so again, just how much I enjoy the fact that LaBelle's pursuit of the jackal relies almost entirely on hard work, clear thinking, intelligence and experience, and not on tawdry things like serendipity, uncommon luck or in the case of some of the worst examples, something largely indistinguishable from magic or a deus ex machina. This is not a film that I will ever tire of watching, and not even Richard Gere can sully this for me. (laughs) Yeah, it's an absolutely masterclass, and it's kind of a recurring theme, I think, in a lot of uh, Frederick's adaptations, where uh, some upper echelon nonsense aside... All the lead characters in it tend to be hyper competent at what they do, and there's something yes, incredibly so satisfying, satisfying about yeah, just watching someone good at some something doing yeah. something. Uh, does get, give a lot of giving them the time and space to do it, and yeah, yeah. Um, and just I agree entirely. Makes for a really compelling watch. Uh, Real edge of the seat stuff a lot of the time, and yeah, it's just uh, echo everything you're saying. There's just a lovely to see investigations that don't rely on arbitrary coincidence or other people selling other people out it's all just good old-fashioned hard work uh, from the Mm. days when it seems even harder to do this kind of work you can't just uh, have a magic button that snoops on every cell phone conversation or something like that it's uh, just hard work and common sense and it's uh, just fascinating to watch it's interesting for me that edward fox i don't find to be an actor of the broadest range but he's absolutely this this is one of those roles which is like a once in a lifetime thing where he's mm-hmm. absolutely perfect in this role mm-hmm. it fits fits him like a glove that very prim and proper english veneer his enunciation uh, is very sort of matter of fact way of approaching this monumental task and this this obviously what would be a historical act mm-hmm. um would it, would it come to pass the, the weight of history hangs over this film essentially up until the very final act and he goes about it so methodically and and um so many, so many times uh, in in other films, we'll see the character of the assassin portrayed, and they'll attempt to p- portray them as being someone charismatic, and it quite often or almost always doesn't work, or yeah. it's just such a one dimensional character by necessity of that sort of cool, calculating hitman uh, routine that there's 
there's no humanity to the character. There is no uh, toehold for for the audience. But there's there's something about Edward Fox's portrayal um, and the character himself. He's he, he comes across as very emotionless and and very efficient. But at the same time, in a sense, he does he does have a moral code, as as we find through his interaction with some of his sources. Um, for example, Cyril Cusack, who is. Uh, amazing as the gunsmith yeah. I absolutely love Cyril Cusack yeah. in this movie I don't think I've seen him do anything better and he's only got about five minutes of screen time um, and Cyril Cusack is Jack Black in 1980 oh, God. sorry sorry Craig but I'm just sorry. it's just making that film come back to me and I'm, that film made me so angry <laughs> alright take your time Jack Black <laughs> yes because Cyril Cusack's so good Yes. Um, The sort of relationship that he has there, which is built on uh, mutual respect, Cyril Cusack's character, you know, asks no questions whatsoever of the jackal. He doesn't make a nuisance of himself. He is a master of his own craft. He is is the person that this world, you know, well, Mm. not world-renowned, because actually part of his... his, um, Part of his skill is that he's not particularly world renowned. No, nobody knows who the hell he is. Um, this is someone who he trusts, who he views as an equal. And at the point at which he um, interacts with uh, the character of the forger, who I don't. Does he have a name? Ronald uh, Pickup's character? Is it just. Let me I scroll IMDb. So. No, he's just known as the forger. I don't think um, he has a name in the book. Are they just going to. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember because it was so long ago that I read the, read the bloody book. I read it last week, but I don't remember. Them mentioning a name if it was. I think he's it's just the forger. Yeah, it's not important. Certainly, what what is important is that that character is not as morally um, strict in his operations as Cyril Cusack um, or Edward Fox in this movie. And he, he <laughs> his his attempts to extort the jackal um, don't work out all that well for him. So he, advised. He, yes. yes, he he has a moral code within his within the framework of his his work. Um, and it's he is he is charismatic. Yes, he is he is a charismatic character, and he is quite engaging in that sense, where he, he could have come across as um, as as very difficult to uh, to engage with. But um, obviously, he's he's not a nice character <laughs> in the traditional mm. sense. We are not rooting for him necessarily. Although, as you point out, Drew, it actually at some points become pretty close purely through I think a certain level of respect for what he does. Yeah, I've seen him do this thing so well. It's like I kind of yes. see him follow through this because it's so meticulously planned. So it's satisfying in the sense that you might sort of watch an Olympian who is representing um, a, a country diametrically opposed to the ideals of your own country, but they're they're doing such a wonderful job at their craft that you can't help but sort of <laughs> admire their admire their talent and want and want them to win. And I think you're right as well. It is very much superior to the source material, which is a quite unnecessarily bloated novel, which is why at the age of about 12 or whatever it was, I found myself putting it down more than more than once and having to come back and start again over the... the I think it was, I was probably in my late teens before I actually went back and read the thing from start to finish. This film as an adaptation feels like it still has that space to breathe and for the characters to operate in, but it is much more clinical and much more streamlined and much more efficient in the way that it portrays the events. It's also one of those films that's just quite happy for the audience to to come along uh, for the ride and, and trust them with uh, some modicum of intelligence. There's no, you know, there's no real on the nose moments where you know Basil Exposition pops up and just <laughs> explains to you exactly. Um, mm-hmm. Exactly what it is that Michael Lonsdale's character's thinking, or or what his methodology is. Um, it's it's just a it's on a on a technical level. I'm not sure it's necessarily one of the best films of the seventies because the seventies was a hell of a decade for film. <laughs> but it's yes. one of it's one of my favourite films of the seventies, um, and it's a it's a, a wonderful wonderful thing. It's be, it's become a comfort film. It's one of a yeah. it's one of a list of about five films that if I'm having a crap day and I'm having a day in the sofa and I'm not feeling well, I'll I'll, I'll get under the blanket and I'll stick this on. Yeah, I, I I could actually get on board with that. It's it's probably one of my favourite films ever because I, I just. Maybe because, like you say, Craig, comic film, I could just sit down and watch this any time, anywhere. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, really, as I said, I, I could not tire of watching this film. It's, it's so satisfying. Mm-hmm. Definitely. 
Yes, I agree entirely. Very good. Very good film is indeed. Um, I'd, I'd be very surprised if we don't circle around at the end of this and declare that this is easily the best adaptation of Fred I mean, Precise work. We, we can declare that now, I think. Yes. Um, <laughs> when you said <laughs> probably at the beginning yeah. of Scholar, the, my first word of, instead of introducing this almost was, let's just stop with it probably. <laughs> here yes. Yeah. <sighs> We've alluded to it a few times, so we should at least mention that it was remade-ish in 97 uh, as the Jackal uh, Bruce Willis and Richard Gere vehicle and it doesn't warrant a lot of discussion other to say that this is much worse on every level part of that strange time when Hollywood was fascinated with IRA hitmen for some reason that became a, <laughs> became a thing yeah, um, sympathetic to the IRA despite them being murderers you know it's yeah. like that, that was a really weird thing that in Patriot Games True. I mean, I, I True. Know that the US would not sell guns to bad people <laughs> no come on no no they wouldn't no <laughs> Uh, I mean, Who the thing. Is, journalists. <laughs> I mean, obviously, the thing everyone goes to to insult this film is Bruce Willis's daft wigs and bad accents, which I think really does a great job of distracting from Richard oh. Gere's terrible accent. <laughs> yes, I was going to say, I don't <laughs> think Bruce Willis's accent is the worst thing in that bad boy. No, I, Bruce Willis, that distracts from Bruce Willis's terrible acting in that film. Um, yes. But it's Richard Gere's terrible acting, terrible accent. Completely pointless character is one of the biggest problems, or three of the three of the biggest problems. In, the best thing about film. the best thing about that movie is watching Bruce Willis so clearly trying to overcome every fibre of his being and and act um, and <laughs> act act in such a way as he imagines he might attract a homosexual man <laughs> to, his, to his flat. Nobody's buying it, Bruce. That was a bridge too far, mate. Come on. We appreciate you trying, but it's go go home. We've all had a few. Yeah, and then also there's um Mathilde May's accent, which is also awful, just in keeping with the the theme of terrible accents, because she's a French woman and she's supposed to be a Basque separatist and like mm. just bad accents all around. It's Listen, in fairness, Frederick Forsyth wrote to really bad accents. <laughs> it's weird. That film actually says it's based on the screenplay for the Day of the Jackal, which is yeah. weird. It's actually but it's got things that are in the book that aren't in the Fred Zinnemann films, so it's actually based more on the book and it's like unnecessary stuff. I've always viewed it as very much more a, re, a sort of a reimagining of the film rather than a novel. But you're right; there's a lot of stuff in there. In fact, yeah, there are there are some parts of the novel that aren't in the Day of the Jackal that make it into yeah, exactly this the Jackal, yeah, no, which yeah, is weird. Guys hold up in a hotel, them um, mm. picking on this. The na- the surnames change, I think, but um, the first name Victor of this European um, Eastern European thug who's protecting mm. the OAS OAS yeah. guys. Them that being the way they get it, that's in the jackal. That's mm. in the book, but not in the original film. Mm-hmm. And then there is that whole chapter of the book that they didn't, that Fred Zinnemann didn't feel fit to put in 1973, which was um, this American with a terrible Irish accent playing a sympathetic um, <laughs> terrorist to catch the other assassin. That was, it's weird that that was never in the Fred Zinnemann version. <laughs> oh, Begora, I'm just very misunderstood. Yeah, and it's a strange coming from Michael Caton Jones, a, a good local Broxburn lad who mm. put this out, and it just seems like it would have a lot of political red flags for anyone in Britain. But anyway, I suppose one man's freedom fighters, another man's terrorist, and all that. But still, come on, Sire. Yeah, I know. Yeah, not not nineteen twenties Sire, but it might be said because you know the British were shooting Irish people and things. Then, <laughs> you know, nineteen seventies onwards Sire when like. What part of living in Britain from that point was being um, was you being subjugated or somehow having a poor standard of living by not living in your own country? No, was mm. <laughs> not sympathetic, mm. just killers. Yeah, so we're recommending not to watch the Jackal. It is bad. Right. But no, so, it's, it's entirely sensible that they have the massive, massive gun. No, no, it's not. There's nothing sensible about that entire film uh, from start to finish. <laughs> so let's move on to something. Well. Certainly better than the jackal, uh, the Odessa file. Yes, <laughs> yes, it is better than the jackal. Um, it is nineteen sixty-seven, and freelance journalist Peter Miller is plying his trade on the streets of the German city of Hamburg when he happens upon the clean-up of an apparently innocuous suicide. An older Jewish gentleman by the name of Solomon Tauber has seen fit to gas himself in his own home, and upon somewhat of a whim, Miller inquires further, obtaining Tauber's diary and discovering therein a harrowing document of life in. 
inside the Nazi concentration camp at Riga. Lorded over by the horrendous figure of Colonel Edward Rushman. He was a colonel, wasn't he? Uh, yes. I wrote that in my notes yesterday without actually I can't, I recall fact-checking I've, that. Um, as good last as. week, watched the film and read the book. <laughs> yes. Um, colonel Edward Rushman. Uh, the camp at Reba stripped Tauber of everything, including his wife Esther, and he was one of the scarce few inmates to escape with his life at the end of the war. In the intervening years, Rushman was assumed missing following capture by Allied forces and his subsequent escape. However, Tauber claims to have seen Rushman mere weeks previously, very much alive and well in Hamburg, living under a new identity. This, it seems, removed the last of Tauber's hope. As a child during the war, Miller is very much of the first generation of Germans forced to confront the crimes perpetrated by his countrymen during the war. And quietly enraged by the notion of Rochman's audacious revival, he sets about investigating the colonel's whereabouts. Miller's inquiries lead him via the German police's somewhat ineffectual Nazi war crimes division, who, in 17 intervening years, have brought to justice a mere three men, all of them rank-and-file soldiers. And it is following this revelation that he learns of the existence of Odessa, a clandestine network of former SS men, still unapologetically dedicated to the heinous ethos of Hitler's nationalist movement and who take great pride in setting their members up with new identities both in Germany and around the world. What's more, we have already learned from a somewhat superfluous pre-credit sequence that an emboldened Odessa have channelled their ill-gotten Nazi gains into a perilously near-completion plan to leverage Egyptian military assets and use chemical weapons in an effort to wipe Israel off the map. Still, at least it could never happen now! <laughs> the Odessa file is one of those timeless pieces tied to one of modern man's darkest hours that exists somewhat outside the normal realms of criticism by virtue of the subject matter. Director Ronald Neem, who bookended this movie with the Poseidon Adventure in 72 and Meteor in 79, <laughs> fashions... Fashion's a slightly above average, slow-burning thriller that sits quietly and effectively within the pantheon of films that tried to address the outrages of the mid-century, attempting to make sense of the fundamentally senseless. If the reenactments of certain behaviours and atrocities within Riga appear here as anodyne, then it's probably to the movie's credit, as what we know of the day-to-day operation of those enterprises suggests that they were perhaps most outrageous in just how matter-of-fact such behaviours became. One flashback in particular where Roshman giggles as he and two subordinates momentarily trick a young Jewish man into believing he has been shot, only then to shoot him anyway, nails that point down with absolute efficiency. Maximilian Schell's portrayal of Roshman, now of pensionable age, is also very well weighted. Here, and in common with other Odessa members we meet, is not a monster, but a pathetic, angry old man married to bad ideas who refuses to accept his place in history, even doubling down on his rhetoric when confronted by a man with a gun demanding answers. <laughs> Shell's screen time is actually very limited, and I'd say appropriately so, as we learn more than enough of he and his ilk in a few moments to be satisfied there is no redemption to be had for his lack of repentance. It is Voigt, whoever, who, who carries the movie, as reporter Miller. Did I mention John Voigt before? I'm t- saying Voigt as if I've just... In- yeah, yes. I think I'm not convinced you said yes. you mentioned Peter Miller. Start. I'm not convinced yes. you mentioned it is, it, it is John Voigt, however, who carries the movie as reporter Miller. <laughs> not just not just Voigt. Um, although there's only so many Voigts going around. Uh, I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm sure you put two and two together, listener. Uh, and a decent fist he makes of it, possibly giving one of his best performances from underneath an accent that could have gone horribly wrong. <laughs> um, but here is perfectly acceptable for the most part. Yeah. As a leading man, he certainly can and the character of Miller is alert enough not to make the kinds of dumb plot necessitating mistakes that often befall movie reporters, <laughs> though innocent and idealistic enough to sell the momentum of his moral outrage as a propellant through what could have been an otherwise convoluted and improbable set of circumstances. As well researched as Forsyth's own investigation into Odessa was, there is much discourse in literature over whether the organisation actually ever existed. It's somewhat of a moot point, however, as any number of similar organisations are very well documented, and there remains testimony to much of their activity through the many organisations who, up until very recently, were still very much pursuing remaining Nazi war criminals in the remotest of places. Having said all that... The thing that scares me most about the Odessa file and other media approaching this subject matter is that its relevance to the West will perhaps have changed somewhat in the last two years. The notion of a far-right organisation having to operate under the radar has been somewhat knocked on the head recently, to the point where I can imagine those deluded enough to buy into the degenerate dream of white supremacy holding material like this up as blatant disinformation. What a generation of future armchair critics will make of it 20 years from now is anybody's guess, but I suppose it's our job to see to it that the Odessa file remains (laughs) revelant. (laughs) 
it relevant, if not high art. <laughs> yeah, well, I think they won't make anything of it because armchairs won't exist in 20 years. They're either Every armchair will have gone up in fire mm. or been um, subsumed by the waves. Only the, only the springs will remain. <laughs> it will have been converted into tactical assault furniture and been used in the impending wars. <laughs> mentioned first John Voight I, I don't really care all that much for John Voight I've never particularly liked him in anything mm. scene but he does a pretty good fist of this he really does actually his, his accent slips a wee bit but it is actually quite it's quite a mild accent for, for that it's yeah. so much more believable in a film that could just, quite easily have gone all about hello hello yeah, um, exactly. yes. he's, he's not hair flick it's, yeah and it's, so, yeah, it's a fairly mild accent. Slips a couple of times, but it's generally mm-hmm. constant throughout. And yeah, it works really well. So he's it's quite good centre. And there are a few scenes in particular, like when he's being interrogated to see where they had actually been in the SS before he infiltrates them, infiltrates Odessa, when he's sweating and he's just looking mm-hmm. really uncomfortable. It's actually, that's really well played. I didn't care all that much for Maximilian Schell, though. Mm-hmm. In particular, the... The sort of recreated scenes of the things that are happening in the concentration camps, um, and I th- the extras who are playing the the victims, I didn't think were great either. I, just, I didn't think they were particularly well done. But I am wondering how much that's now coming from a post Schindler's List world, um, mm-hmm. because actually it's Schindler's List that has ruined that character for me. Because you're right, Craig, that he has this kind of pathetic civil servant type of character, and he's not. You think he should just be some sort of monster, but it's more like the mundane TV type of thing, and he's just this snivelling little person. Um, the, the terrifying thing is how well you know this man already. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whereas, yeah, when I was reading the book, I pictured him like Ralph Fiennes in Ooh. Schindler's List, like this, like um, seething, foaming in the mouth, crazy, evil monster guy. Ooh. So I watched Maxwell Schindler's List. Like, oh. Yeah, I didn't really picture it like that at all. Uh, mm. So that takes a wee bit of it away from me. But as you say, it's not in it a lot, so it doesn't matter so much, I guess. Derek Jacobi doesn't actually have an awful lot to do in that film. He's a bit wasted. That's a more significant role in the book. I don't have a lot to add to what he said. I do quite enjoy it. It's, mm. it's not as good as the book, although it does have... As much as I praise the Day of the Jackal for not relying on luck, the book, the book in fact relies incredibly on luck for two particular things, only one of which is in this film, so that's an improvement. And I actually, the revelation at the end as to why he's infiltrated the Odessa, in the film I was expecting it, but in the book it completely, or almost completely undercut, undermined the whole book for me. Mm. Um, I can imagine that. Because he, all through the book he's asked, why are you doing this? Why are you, this Aryan German, this tall, blonde, blue-eyed young German, why are you doing this? Why are you going after the Odessa and the SS? Um, and all through the book I'm thinking, well, is it not just like it's the right thing to do? Yeah. <laughs> and I really, and it's not, that's not why he does it in the end. And it just, it almost destroyed my enjoyment of the whole book because I was enjoying it so much up to that point. I really, I really felt it from the film's point of view, because I've not read the book, I, I really felt that was kind of superfluous in the movie. Yeah. I didn't think that was required at all. I found it yeah. quite a distraction at the end. In the book, it's really annoying. But at least in the book, they, they, there is a, like the constant question of the that group that are affiliated... In the book, sorry, in the film, they just say that they are working for Mossad. Mm-hmm. In the book, they're not, but they're like affiliated with Mossad. They kind of work together. Um, they're their own group going after the Odessa. Aswad. Most deaf. Mossad and most deaf. <laughs> but yeah, they've so reasonably questioned him as to why he's doing this. So at least it's a, it's a theme through the book and then the reason why in the end is stupid. In the book, it's, it's sorry, in the film, it's barely mentioned. It's like not a question that comes up. So why they add that in at the end, I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't really need any additional motivation other than the general outrage of it, uh, 
yes. what was happening anyway. Yes. And when it just comes at the end, it's a bit of a damp squib. It doesn't really add anything to the point. And, yeah. and to mm. be honest, it kind of undercuts it at some point because you'd think if that was the case, that's what happened, then wouldn't you have taken more of an interest in it? Whereas he seems to come to a lot of the <laughs> SS war crimes being saying, oh, I didn't know this. Like, oh, really? I think, I think there, are, there, really, there really is enough dramatic tension built into the notion of a young man coming to terms with what his, what yes. his parents' generation did on yeah. that scale. Like, you, you don't need to add anything else to that, really. Yes. Yeah, that's uh, exactly what I was saying, Scott. It's, it just it does undercut it, and it's it's worse in the book. Mm. Uh, maybe because I was enjoying the book more. Perhaps is why. And in the film, I was already prepared for it. But yes, it's yeah. This, this he's doing it because it's clearly the right thing to do. Because this is a monst- a monstrous, monstrous crime. Just what's quite interesting too. Uh, just you were saying that you know, Craig, there's the idea of the Odessa is, was postulated. Uh, the name's actually of American origin. And certainly there were mechanisms like that to get the Nazis away. So whether the actual Odessa exists or not, but it's quite interesting that, uh, as well as being a character in the film, the real-life Simon Wiesenthal was a technical correspondent or a consultant on the film. Mm. And he would know about that sort of stuff. So I mean, there is some historical veracity involved in this film. Yeah, you could not pick nits about whether it was actually one organisation called Odessa with an overarching goal or if it was just a bunch of splinter yeah. cells yeah, or whatever exactly. but I mean I think the overall general truthiness of it is there yes. um, it, it's certainly stuff like this happened whether they were calling themselves Odessa or not and had a special yeah, secret exactly. handshake it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things exactly. and then yeah you, you said Craig about like only three people having been brought to justice by the police I don't know if maybe it's just it's not clear in the film but in the book it's it's very much the Hamburg police that's the case with the rest of the country isn't the same mm. like, there's a central prosecution service but it's like Hamburg where Peter Miller's from but uh, yeah there's a lot of I think quite good with Frederick Forsyth stuff because the like the, the day of the jackal too it's he's taken kind of worked a fiction around real events and things mm-hmm. and and it gives it yeah, as you say it's got extra degree of truthiness it's a nice nice scaffold yeah and it's very much the case here because you know um, Simon Wiesenthal was working to infiltrate those people and to hunt the Nazis down Adolf Eichmann stuff and all those people had gone to Argentina and and Brazil and they're still there are still hugely German-speaking parts of Argentina, towns in Argentina that look like um, alpine villages, you know, because mm. it's so much of a German thing. So there is, like, all that real stuff in there. It just makes it kind of a bit more satisfying that when you know that there's a a real background to it. It kind of makes it more believable. Because mm-hmm. everything about these Frederick Forsyth adaptations, for the most part, you know, up until that 1997 abomination, mm-hmm. it's... Uh, it's really quite grounded and it's so satisfying about that that nothing seems ridiculous and it's scarier for that I guess I think that's what I like about the sort of the characters being downplayed so much and that's why I kind of liked like you say Drew you have to, you have to we, we view these things through the, the lens of um, of uh, Schindler's List but I'm actually quite glad that the I'm not glad about anything about concentration camps, <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad for um, dramatic purposes that this was portrayed the way it was because it is so bland and it is so subtle that it's probably good that it, you question that we have to sit and question like, oh, it can't have been like because actually I think if there had been if there had been too much histrionics or if Roshman had been more of a Ray Fiennes, um and not that his character was a, a caricature in. Um, in Schindler's List, but it very much was a heightened villainous character, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think if that had been the case here, I, I think it would have been it would have been difficult to buy into. And although a lot of the Odessa file is, apart from two really out of place, ridiculously bombastic music cues that just drop in out of nowhere, <laughs> um, the rest of it is actually so so downplayed that it makes the cell that much easier. The sort of prosaic nature of it all, the, the the monotony of this stuff and the fact that this is going on and just the mm-hmm. acceptance of it is, I think, uh, 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 to, the, to the film's credit, doesn't necessarily make for thrilling viewing. But yeah. in what it's trying to achieve, I actually think it fits it pretty well. There's also, and I know this film was made in the, the 1970s, but it's set in 1963. It mm-hmm. starts the day after... President Kennedy of the United States was assassinated, yeah. and 
that you realise this that's only 18 years after the end of World War Two, so it's very yeah. different but also people didn't really I mean I know it's after the Nuremberg trials and stuff but it's not like the people were beginning to understand really that the Holocaust had happened but people still didn't like to talk about the details mm-hmm. so in the German side you've got people either denying it or it's like well, yeah well maybe we were involved in it let's not talk about it and before mm-hmm. laws were passed in Germany to to make it an offence to deny it and that sort of thing. And in the West, you've got people not really liking to talk about the war much. You've got things that are still covered by things like the Official Secrets Act. Mm-hmm. You've got like the the British and American soldiers that discovered the camps. Not really much to talk about it because that's the most horrific thing you can imagine. And without widespread dissemination through documentary television or films and things of the the true extent of the atrocities that it all just kind of makes it a bit more believable that mm. you don't see the level of stuff there because people didn't really know. Yeah. I think if I, if I may do in summation, because it is in a lot of ways, it's a slight movie that is dealing with a big, a, a big, big topic. Mm. If I may in summation, I will say this, that after I finished watching the Odessa file, I found myself having taken it a lot more seriously than I expected to when during the opening credits, one of the one of the one of the first titles bills uh, Christmas Dream performed by Perry Como and that was so uh, music, weird. music by Andrew Andrew Lloyd Webber, which retros- retrospectively is um, r- r- really out of place and a, yeah, almost almost that, tasteless. Yeah. But it also fact- was was not the film that that led me to expect I might watch. No, I had entirely forgotten about that, Craig. But I remember. Thinking as I started watching, like, what on earth is this song doing here? I know what this film's about. Why is mm-hmm. it in here? And it feels like Perry Como, Tim Rice, what? Title it- song Christmas Dream performed by Perry Como. Right, okay. Isn't this like- isn't this about isn't this about Nazis smuggling other Nazis out of Germany? Yeah. And about somebody wanting to wipe out the state of Israel using mm. chemical weapons, mm. which the Nazis were going to help. That's how the, the film begins with Preach, that Perry. about um, <laughs> President Nasser wanting to wipe out all of Israel. Mm. Then a wee jaunty Christmas song as Peter Miller drives through Hamburg. And I kept making me think, is this like the inspiration for, um, do you know how Christmas trees are made from them on a massive secret service or something because it made me think of that song so much like this is the wrong tone <laughs> but, um, it's it's so strange that uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because I had entirely forgotten about it because it just it made no sense at all like I'd put out of my mind <laughs> it's certainly my favourite Christmas movie now yeah beats Die Hard <laughs> what is next Scott the dogs of war so I'll hand over to me it's high diddle dee dee a mercenary's life for me. Uh, Christopher Walken's gun for hire, James Shannon, escapes one war-torn situation only to return home to America with about as much welcome to it for him. Not for long, though. He's soon approached by corporate interests with an assignment to reconnoiter Zangaro, the African state twinned with Valverde. After <laughs> after achieving a measure of post-colonialisation democracy, the winner of their first election, General Kimbas, decided that's quite enough of that, imprisoning, killing or exiling his rivals in that race and setting up a good old-fashioned hunter. However, he's not playing nice with the mineral exploitation rights, hence the corporate interest in him. Off Shannon goes, posing as a nature photographer to at least partially allay the suspicions of the paranoid Kimber regime, shown the lay of the land by some unhelpful local guides and a rather more helpful Irish journalist, Colin Blakely's Alan North. He sneaks out to find the weak points in the central compound's defences. It doesn't go entirely smoothly, complications leading to him being, if not exactly discovered, detained after the military jumps to the correct conclusion and present him with a sound beating. He's only saved from death by the administrations of jailed ex-presidential candidate Dr Okoye, by Winston Natosha, and the threat of some bad publicity from North's reporting. Bundled on a plane back to America, he submits his report, but, liking the cut of his jib, the said corporate interest decide he's just the man to plan and head up a bit of regime change, with the aim of installing Colonel Hallis's Colonel Bobby as a more friendly option. <laughs> Unfortunately, in Scotland, Bobby has a very different meaning. <laughs> Reluctantly, Shannon makes the choice to endanger what's left of his relationship with his ex-wife to front this operation and goes about the business of convincing his gang of mercenaries to join in, training Colonel Bobby's troops, planning the operation and working out the black magic, black, black market logistics. 
This all takes a perhaps a surprising amount of the running time in a modern cinema landscape that I suspect couldn't resist cramming all of that into a montage and getting straight to the shooting, which in this film comes very late to the party. And while for the most part that action is handled adequately, daft grenade launcher thingy aside, it's not really the point of Dogs of War, which is much happier looking at the bigger plan and at the worldview that this sort of activity imparts on Shannon and the great divergence between that and normal society. Now, this, as it turns out, is exactly my sort of jam, so I found this reasonably enjoyable, although I recognise it's by no means a particularly amazing film. It's pinned down by a restrained performance from Walken, who I occasionally forget can be an actor when he's not being a character sure. And, being a Walken, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and the nuts and bolts of arranging the overthrow attempt is very interesting to me, at least. Uh, it's mildly marred by an ending that I'm not convinced Shannon's characterization quite backs up and will almost certainly be rectified by others halfway through the credits, but that's a very small element of the piece as a whole. Now, perhaps it's not worth making extraordinary efforts to watch, but it's a solid slow-burning entry in this little subgenre that's not exactly overserved, so gets a few extra points for that at least. And, well, any film that reminds me of The Last King of Scotland can't be a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, this is... It's all right. Mm. Uh, I really struggle to to say much more about it. Like the day of the jackal, uh, and you met, you mentioned it's got the just like the the meticulous planning. Yeah, that's really satisfying to watch. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, it's a very small part of the film, but yeah. that bit's satisfying. It's just them making the preparations, hiding the weapons, and things like that. Yeah, it's a strange thing to say about a film, but I could have done with about half an hour more of haggling about the price of ornaments. That sort of thing is. <laughs> in this box of black magic <laughs> the bit at the end I kind of saw coming uh, yeah. like the, the twist that Chris Falken's character pulls uh, because otherwise it would be a really really horrible ending yeah, and it it does tie in somewhat to a character arc they're trying to build of him trying to get out of this life and trying to redeem yeah. himself a little bit, but it doesn't. It, it's that's not been enough to the forefront to really earn that ending, I think. Yeah, yeah and I mean the film is, as with other stuff, kind of grounded. That there's nothing apart from that grenade launcher, which is apparently the same as some tanks. Um, <laughs> it's you know it's reasonably believable, and. Uh, yeah, nothing hugely far-fetched because I think if you this small African country, if you took over that one building in the capital, <laughs> probably you could be able to like you know effect change and give out the new documents with the new person's name on it and things. <laughs> the big problem that I have with this film is the reason I don't enjoy it more is that there is not a single likable character in the entire film. Yeah, maybe. Maybe the doctor that helps in the prison, but he's a very, very minor character. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the the reporter, you get the feeling that while he's kind of looking for stories, like he's trying to say, like show do proper journalism, say these are the horrible things happening in this country. Mm-hmm. Other than that, there isn't a single likable character because Christopher Walken's certainly not it because no. he's the head of a mercenary group who's going to overthrow the leader of a country because some Western company wants to make some money out of the country. You know, it's, the, yes. it's just bad people all around. Yes, replace them with a different dictator. So, well, yes. <laughs> um, there, there's, it's not like this film operates in um, shades of grey. I think it's all black. It's <laughs> all dark. It's all bad. Um, and then, you know, you have Tom Berenger being the typical Tom Berger role of just being a deeply unlikable and unpleasant person. Um, mm-hmm. Not to the extent he's in Platoon or anything, but you know, he's still, it's like, yep, Tom Berger. <laughs> Bit of a get then. Um, and yeah, it's, there are moments that I enjoy. Christopher Walken certainly is the highlight of the film acting-wise because he, he do, you do feel that he, there's something under there that he's in this life. and But his the fact that he's, Think, right, I'm out of this, I've been tortured um, for an entire day, apparently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a strange bit of the film, he says. Um, the guy challenges him to go back to this country to take back what was taken from you, but you've clearly established that he was tortured for a day. Now, I'm not <laughs> saying it was pleasant, but it was a day. You know, it wasn't in a prisoner war camp for three years or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, but you can, his motivation for deciding to go against these newly blossoming morals and ethics and go and kill a bunch of people um, for basically being paid to murder because that's what he's doing, he's being paid to murder uh, happens because the woman he loved 
didn't immediately decide to uproot her entire life <laughs> in one evening after they haven't seen each other for three years. So, you know, it's it's not particularly compelling, even yeah. though he sells that as best as he possibly can. Yes, yeah, it's, it's okay, but it's yeah, it, it's really probably satisfying. It's it's a bit better than I expected because uh, I stumbled across a, a, a semi-trailer-ish for this. It was like a little clip that he showed in Amazon Prime Video, I think. And uh, <laughs> that one bit, it was when he's trying to sneak into the country through customs as a uh, nature journalist. And it was reminding me a little bit of Max Zorn. And I was just wondering if he was going to play the entire <laughs> film as Max Zorn, which I thought could have been awesome. Um, you know, dreadful, but awesome. Uh, he doesn't do that. Instead, he actually does a, a really good job of painting as complicated as he can make a character that's not actually that complicated. I think it. I think I get the feeling it, it wishes to be much more deeper and complex than it actually has been written. But and he's doing his best to elevate it. But yeah, um, I'd probably caution people that if you don't have a sort of the, the affinity for this sort of thing, as I think we all do, the kind of slower burning thrillery type stuff, you won't get a lot out of it. Um, and certainly nothing like as much as you would from uh, either Day of the Jackal in particular or even the Decifile. Uh, this is certainly yeah. a step down from either of those. I still enjoyed it quite a lot. Um, I, uh, uh, But I do recognise that I'm perhaps in the exactly the right spot and the Venn diagrams for this kind of thing. So I, yeah, I enjoyed it, but it's it's uh, provides us up the bazoo for me with it. Yes, uh, yes. With the exception of excuse me, with the the jackal which we have right yeah, yeah. pillowed already, <laughs> set that aside. It for me, it's the least essential of the four Frederick Forsyth film adaptations. Mm-hmm. Um, there are moments that are good. Unfortunately, there was one other slight problem I had because I was feeling it was. Not dragging so much, and just, I, I couldn't really get invested in it because it's still like, yeah, he's been paid to do this to help a company. You know, yeah, the yeah. corporations are evil. You know, it's I don't really need to see that again. And having your main character working for corporations, but when he goes to what's the place called? I've, <laughs> Zangora, Zanjeef. I forgot the name of it. Sangaro. Sangaro. Okay. Um, when he goes to Sanjeev, um, <laughs> he's. Um, Presumably it's very, very young Hugh Quarshie and Jim Broadbent in this film, just uh, as an aside. But, mm. uh, he's met by this guy who goes out in a jeep with him to look at uh, birds. And I haven't looked up, but I'm 99% certain he's Matthew from Desmond's. And um, <laughs> and if he isn't Matthew from Desmond's, he looks almost, almost exactly like Matthew from Desmond's. And so for a good... 20 minutes of the film I was thinking about Desmond's instead I've not seen Desmond's in 25 years <laughs> and so, okay maybe this that tells a lot of the film that it's kind of lost my lost my attention span for a quarter of its running time because I'm thinking about a 1980s Channel 4 sitcom instead mm. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a particularly weird thing to say but I'm a particularly weird person but nonetheless <laughs> I was thinking about Desmond's for 20-25 minutes of this film <laughs> <laughs> no pork pie though but yeah it's uh, it's okay, and Christopher Walken's quite compelling in it. Easy to forget now when you see him with things like Seven Psychopaths with his um, ludicrous hair and his kind of mad staring eyes that he used to be quite a pretty guy. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, hmm, okay. But I have no point, I was just like, <laughs> like struck by um, that how uh, physically if you seem so different to, to now that that's not what you. St- Drinks you about him anymore. Cool story, bro. <laughs> 25 minutes of this film thinking about Desmond's creators. <laughs> it was talking to all my attention for some parts, can you tell? It's been 25 minutes of the podcast talking about how pretty Chris Walkins used to be. Listen, he was a handsome guy. Let's leave it at that. Right, shall we round things off with Luke at the fourth protocol then? <laughs> Please. Yes. yes. <laughs> The mid-1980s, and in the Soviet Union, the head of the KGB, General Govorshin, police squad's Alan North, of all people, <laughs> puts into motion a plan to make the United States seem negligent and careless in its ownership of nuclear weapons, with the end goal being the dissolution of NATO. To this end, he sends Pierce Brosnan's Major Valery Petrovsky, an expert in British customs, to the UK to construct an atomic bomb and cause its detonation in or near to the United States Air Force Base at the fictional RAF Baywaters, a 
cunningly disguised name which bears no resemblance whatsoever to mm-hmm. the real RAF Bentwaters. <laughs> Get around that one, lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> Attempting to discover the details of the plot is Michael Caine's John Preston, whose serendipitous sideways promotion at MI5 leads to him stumbling onto a Soviet agent posing as a sailor who had in his possession a disc of polonium, an item whose sole purpose, we are told, is to form part of the detonation mechanism for an atomic bomb. He brings his discovery to unreasonable arsehole boss, played by Julian Glover, the same person who had had him moved out of his original job. But unreasonable arsehole boss comes to the mind-bendingly stupid conclusion that Preston has made up the plot, and presumably the polonium disc, in order to gain promotion or favour. This is, sadly, the, um, the hardest thing to buy in any of these films, yeah. with the exception of the 1997 Abomination. Um, these Frederick Forsyth films and the books they are based on, again, I have to say, are marked out by how grounded and plausible they are. So, going around um, UAB to Ian Richardson's Sir Nigel Irvin to get the resources that he needs, Preston tracks down Petrovsky and, sorry to spoil anything here, stops 5,000 people from being killed in large parts of Oxfordshire being rendered uninhabitable for centuries. Mm-hmm. There is a final twist, though, when <laughs> Preston falls up on a hunch as to why some of his investigation was easier than it might otherwise have been. Also, unless I miss something, this film tells us that there is a fourth protocol in the nuclear weapons agreements between the USSR and NATO, but neglects to tell us what that fourth protocol is. <laughs> Curious. <laughs> I had to look it up. <laughs> it's on Wikipedia, it's not in the <laughs> Which is a bit fascinating. Good. I thought maybe my attention had drifted for a crucial nanosecond or something when he explained it, but no. It's also a protocol that you know would have been drafted and proposed by the Brits because it's very, but come on, amongst all this nuclear proliferate. Amongst the nuclear proliferals, Marcus of Queensbury rules, boys. Let's not. <laughs> Let's, let's agree that we should only throw nuclear weapons at each other, not sneak them in the back door. <laughs> Deary me. You can imagine everyone else around the table now going, oh, sure, 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 we'll sign up saying we totally won't do that. <laughs> Suckers. Sorry, Drew, had you finished? I had. A, I didn't have a, an awful lot more to say about this film. I enjoyed it, hmm. um, apart from that... Julian Glover's character bafflingly not accepting that. It's every bit as stupid as that whole Harry Potter, Cornelius Fudge, let's not believe any of the evidence thing that uh, mm. we've railed about in the, uh, in the previous incarnations of the podcast. Yeah. Um, there's uh, there's there's kind of a lot going on and also not a lot going on with this movie. It's I remember this. I, I don't know why I've never seen it all the way start from start to finish. I think I've tried watching it on TV sort of like late at night at some point and fallen asleep halfway through it. So this is the first time that I've watched it from start to finish. It's it's not it's not the greatest movie ever and I recall it having a pretty poor reputation as it goes, but I kind of enjoyed it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, mm-hmm. I think Michael Caine's fun, Ian Richardson's always fantastic value, mm. Pierce Brosnan's, he's no, he's no Taffin. No, um, <laughs> no don't, because through the whole movie I kept thinking, I just want someone to turn up and knock on his door to conduct an investigation, <laughs> and for his answer to be, what happens in this town is none of your business. <laughs> <laughs> That's really, really Somebody's say, well, maybe you shouldn't be living here. <laughs> But yeah, Pierce Brosnan very much on the ascendant and like, forget this is very much from the period where Michael Caine was basically working for food um, or, or certainly certainly like a new outhouse or something like that um, he's, not, he's not terrible but you can very much tell he's coasting and that he's done this thing a lot of times before uh, yeah. he's, he's not really invested in it I mean it's somewhere it's, it's somewhere. his role is somewhere between the Ipcris file and the swarm in terms of <laughs> in terms of how much he's That's in a hell of a in terms of in terms of how much he's you can tell he's really invested in this role you can see the point in the movie at which about halfway through he's like oh who cares um, and actually the person who seems to be enjoying himself most in this movie is Barry his, his cohort who drives the transit van <laughs> and he's absolutely loving throwing that transit van around um, you say drive yes <laughs> that's a very loose use of that word. yes he's projecting that transit van along a series of intersecting vectors uh, to, towards, towards a final goal. 
it's it's an interesting film, and again, it's it's that thing of the. It's, it's maybe not so much about the spy craft and about the sort of the the deductive reasoning that uh, we find so enjoyable in a jackal, but it does. I think that perhaps the, the this is the film with uh, certainly the most in, in the short term, at least the sort of most high stakes. Um, yeah, happening yeah. in it, so it feels it feels elevated by sense of that, and and it's portrayed in a way that is, um, I suppose, sadly for the time, quite sort of believable. It's easy yeah, to imagine yeah. that this might have been uh, a workable plot. Again, uh, yeah, uh, nuclear bombs generally are in the realm of the incredibly far fetched. This is a film managed to get make nuclear bomb. Oh yeah, that actually seems not unreasonable. Yeah. The, the satisfaction of seeing them having sneak bits of the casing and then headlights yeah. and things. And it's the mechanics of it. I mean, it functionally, I mean, technically, yes, it's a pretty good representation of what a, a working sort of small portable nuclear weapon would actually look like and the elements it would be predicated yeah. upon. It's not a, some stupid Hollywood bleep bloop thing with a digital <laughs> countdown timer on it um, that looks like that you know that looks like some sort of glorified I don't know techno dildo or something. <laughs> Like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've, only, I've only ever seen the base model techno dildos. I'm not sure what the glorified ones are like. Are they bejeweled? Portable nuclear weapons are so sexy. But so that is, it's, it's sort of the. I think the high stakes are enough, and it's it's the sort of race against time element has has worked well enough, if nothing else, that it remains quite compelling throughout. Um, and it's just always interesting to see Pierce Brosnan in that sort of in in between obscurity and superstardom period, sort of plying his trade and mm-hmm. and and being um, devastatingly handsome. Is this uh, pre Remington Steel Lord just around about the same time? Mm, I want to say around about the same time. I want to say around it, so it was after the long Good Friday where he sort of popped up. Yeah. Uh, and it's before, the same time as before Taffy Dalton's Bond because uh, that's uh, when yes. he wanted him originally. Yeah, yeah that's was, right. This was uh, either after or just at the end of Remington Steel. Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah, I, I enjoyed this. I mean, I think in a lot of ways it's a less interesting film than, for example, The Dogs of War, but it's much easier to enjoy it. It's perhaps a bit more brainless in a way that we can enjoy this without really having been it's not setting out to challenge anything it's like nuclear bombs we've all decided are a bad thing and we should stop them uh, there's not going to be an awful lot of disagreement on that so no. there's, there's no moral ambiguity for there's, there's no good, awful lot of this there's no good application of a nuclear weapon <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's it's just a pretty straightforward thriller the stakes are much higher as you say than everything else but it, that's enough to keep it going and Michael Caine's got enough charisma I think he it helps that the start of this film is really quite an interesting introduction to his character and that kind of lets it get away with an awful lot of rather less interesting stuff towards the end where he's basically yeah. just running from point to point going, I stop him. Um, and uh, it's a bit less interesting for a lot of reasons at that point. But yeah, there, there's just enough of the, the sort of time pressure element to keep it moving. And uh, it's, it's an enjoyable enough watch for the uh, two hours-ish, I think it is. Um, I, will, I will probably never th- go back to this or think about it again, but um, I enjoyed watching it. So there's something there's something just uh, fundamentally compelling about even even when he's coasting along in the breeze about yes. watching Michael Caine be really <laughs> insubordinate. Yes. It's just something that he does incredibly well. <laughs> just that that smarmy sort of self confidence that he is yeah. he has mm-hmm. one up on his superiors kind yes. of thing. It's just it's it's just compelling. I would watch two hours of that to be honest with you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I do. You're Scott. You're saying about like that portion at the start um, when he breaks into Anton Rogers' flat. Uh, <laughs> really sets up. <laughs> Sounds like a terrible euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> the only uh, problem I have with that is that we, they use that to set up that he he's competent, but also for Ian Richardson's character to to say that oh, this gives me some leverage over the deputy of the KGB. Hmm. And then you see a wee bit of the deputy of the KGB in Russia talking to Ned Beatty. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, this film contains Ned Beatty playing a character called Pavel Petrovich. Yes. <laughs> Approved. <laughs> we should perhaps mention those accents because they are very available, aren't they? Yes. What this, ah, film, needed, what this film needed was John Voight to keep everybody in check <laughs> yes. with the accents. Yes, this is very much the antithesis of the Odessa file. Yeah. Um, again, still not as bad as the Jackal, but... Um, <laughs> 
that's on a different level. Yeah, so there's that sort of setup for that, and then it's largely forgotten for the entire film after yeah. that, mm. and it gets brought back at the end, but not in a I kind of believable in terms of political intrigue way and political leverage, but not in a particularly satisfying way. It feels like it's getting a wee bit too close to something like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, but not well. Yeah. Um, and it's probably the biggest problem I have that because it set that up and then it's largely dropped, but still, it's still quite an entertaining film. It's quite compelling. You want to see what happens and how. So it keeps you hooked quite well. Mm. Even if it seems to sort of drop some plot strands for that make a, a whole 20 minute section to begin the film seem meaningless. It's, it's always nice to see Joanna Cassidy popping up as well because I, I feel like she didn't work all that much. It's, it's perhaps odd that she did pop up in this for that reason. But there's um, actually one of the more interesting things is the movie is in the movie is her character's demise. Yeah, she makes an interesting choice at that point to actually, well, we are to suppose that she bizarrely makes a choice to try and warn. Yeah, uh, Petrovsky, the key. Yeah, yeah. B- bizarrely, and uh, there's something like s- absolutely tragic about that um, that makes me uh, find her character a lot more interesting than she might have been. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, an, an interesting film. For, again, very much like the Odessa film, I found myself enjoying it a lot more than I think I probably should have done. <laughs> but yeah, Ned Beatty, Pav- Pavel Petrovich. That's strange casting. I mean, if. If he tried to doing an accent, I didn't actually really notice it because it just wasn't there. It's like people say that um, Sean Connery tries to do an accent in Untouchables. Not like, really. No, he doesn't. He he's just, uh, he's just really out of place among the rest of the cast. Yeah, when you look at the cast. odd cast. Is, is he? I get the impression. I've got a horrible hunch. Was he like? Is he a mate of Michael Caine's or something? I know who'd be good. I know who does a great Russian accent. <laughs> I just don't think he actually tr- really tries particularly to do a Russian accent, so I, I, it doesn't bother me much. But I've got a friend who needs a new car as well. Get Ned Beatty on the phone. <laughs> yeah, I just I've, I've got a funny feeling he might have been shoehorned in there at like Michael Caine's behest or something. I don't know because <laughs> he's otherwise quite out of uh, sticks out a bit. Um, but there you go. I guess that'll wrap us up for the day. A bunch of films that, I mean, actually, for the most part, the jackal aside, uh, really recommend you at least give those a, at least a once over. Um, Stop mentioning it. <laughs> we can't. It's been very traumatic for us. Greg, you don't want to suppress your trauma. Mm-hmm. That leads to big problems in later life. Oh, fair enough. Thank you for asserting that I'm not in proximity of later life yet. (laughs) (laughs) So if there's anything you would like to bring up, then please do get in touch with us. You can do so on Twitter. We're there at FudsOnFilm. Through Facebook, facebook.com slash FudsOnFilm or the old emails podcast at FudsOnFilm.com and we'll be back with you soon enough. But uh, until that time, I will bid you adieu and I'm sure that my good buddies shall too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.